0: So my own experience really was of of growing up in churchianity, I believed everything I was taught, I just wasn't taught very much. (laughs) I didn't really have models of what to do with it other than just turn up and be faithful attending on Sundays. But I went off to university and I, I fell in with a different group of people. Well basically I went to university and discovered during the Freshers' Fair that they had this thing called the Christian Union. And I, I thought, well, I didn't know we had a union. I guess I'd better join it. I, th- I think I'm a Christian. Um, so I joined the union thinking, you know, just in case there's a strike, you know, solidarity with the, bro- with the brothers or something like that. And then you know, I discovered the Christian union wasn't that at all. It was basically getting together, reading the Bible, and having a meal. And I thought, well, I've never read the Bible, but it seems like a good thing for a Christian to do. Um, I'm certainly up for having a meal with pretty girls. Um, so that was good. And... I read the Bible, and just my faith exploded. I met Jesus. And um, despite having been for the whole of my life somebody who would say I, I'm not a very emotional man, I could say without a shadow of a doubt that I fell in love with Jesus. You know, and I love the Lord more and more every year that I go on walking with him. You know, he, he has become so wonderful for me that I've just said, whatever my life is worth, I will spend it in your service. Just guide me and direct me into what to do. And um, I started getting involved in, in evangelism. I was really bad at it. Um, I, am, I am still. Um, God's led me to other things. But I, I was passionate that God, you, you know, I know my life has been changed by reading the Bible, but I'm reading the Bible with all these other people and they don't seem to be changing. And I, I didn't know what I was looking for, I just knew that there was something missing. And so it it had kind of become my prayer. Like, God, would you glorify your name through my life? Would you use me? Would you you reach these people in some way through me? Because I know you've put me into relationship with them, but it's not happening. It happened for me, but it's not happening through me. And um, this was in my second year as a student. I I had this encounter with God. Um, I know now I was being filled with the Holy Spirit. At the time I had no idea what it was. I'd not seen it in the Bible yet. I'd not um, heard about it from any other Christians. To my knowledge I didn't know any Charismatics or Pentecostals. One or two kind of crept out of the woodwork later. But I had this encounter with God. I was trying to go to sleep and the Spirit of God was so powerfully present in the room that I felt this explosion of joy and peace in my heart. Now As I said, I am not an emotional person to this day. You know, we're often watching TV and, and my wife, you know, we're watching something on the television and I just look at her and she's crying. And I think, oh no, what's wrong? And then she'll, look at, she'll point to the television she go, it's sad. And I'll go, oh yeah, I guess it is, yeah. yeah. So I, yeah, basically, in terms of emotions, I am like a brick. Okay, I'm, I'm working on them. I had a feeling once. I said to my wife on our wedding day, I love you and if it changes, I'll tell you. But basically, just take it, live in it. You know, I'm, just, I'm really just not very, expressive. But I was overwhelmed by this sense of love and joy that the Lord had for me and that I had in him. And um, for me, that was a total, um, well, a total turning point, really. And I came to realize as I read through the scriptures that the Bible assumes fullness for those who follow Jesus. Uh, I just want to give you just a few quick passages before we turn to our main section today. But In um, Hebrews chapter 6, this is actually an argument about something else. It's an argument about whether or not people can fall away. But just listen to what the writer to the Hebrews assumes is normal Christian life. This is Hebrews 6. I'll read from verse 4. We are those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. We have shared in the Holy Spirit... We have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. That's Christianity. Are you experiencing the powers of the coming age? Or when Paul writes to the Galatian church, you know the Galatian church were a bit of a mess. They'd made a good start, but they'd been sucked back into religion and, and some Jewish converts were trying to get them back into sort of the Mosaic law and the Jewish religious ways. And Paul says to them, I just want to tell you one thing. Did you receive the spirit by the works of law or by believing what you heard? In other words, you had an experience. How did that experience come? Was it it simply by believing or was it through your own performance? Have you experienced so much in vain? So again, I ask you, does God give you his spirit and work miracles amongst you because you believed? Or because you're putting your trust in what you've done. You know, the, the New Testament assumes that having received the baptism of John, you will receive the baptism of Jesus. Yes. I mean, there's a famous encounter, I think it's Acts chapter 19, as, as Paul is on the road to Ephesus, he meets some believers. They believe in Jesus, but they've only known John's baptism. And, and Paul basically says, that is not enough. You need to experience the baptism of Jesus. And they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're filled with fire. They speak in tongues. They go out passionately serving the Lord. So I asked myself, you know, what can I do with my life? And, and, and I, felt, I felt that um, there's something beautiful about the church. Yes. And, I, and I felt I can give my life to build that. But I don't really know what it is. I, you know, I know the church is not an institution. I know it's not a building. Um, but I've come to believe it is this people that gather around this experience of the lordship of Jesus who died for us, rose for us, saved us, then filled us with his spirit so we can continue his mission on the earth. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. That would be a worthy use of my life. And um, I wrote a couple of books to kind of capture something of what I was feeling. Um, and it's always difficult when you write a book because people might think that you've written a book because you think you're something. And the the truth is, I wrote the books because I know I'm nothing. And if God can do it for me, he can do it for you. And there was a season in my life where I was searching for it, and I'm glad I kept going because I found it. And now i found it, there's so much more I want to experience of it and press in. So so there's two little books. The the black one, called Growing in Circles, is about how basically you don't need anything new. You just need to come back to what you already know but go deeper. Um, and then the white one is what you may well find you need to overcome, in terms of the brokenness of your head and your heart. And so they're on the little table over there. Now, they're only five pounds because they're basically pamphlets. I usually say to people, put it in the smallest room in the house. You'll be through it in a couple of weeks. It'll be fine. Yeah. So why is it though? Why is it that so many of us do not have this experience? Why are we not experiencing the presence and power of God in our lives? If Jesus is the one who baptises with fire why is it that so many of us have a watery faith and i, I believe well, some of it is just simply ignorance we've not been taught about it in our churches we, we haven't been told to pursue the baptism of the spirit old style pentecostals would say have you tarried have you you know have you tarried have you waited have you have you spent that season you know do you regularly spend that season asking god for more So sometimes we just need a day like this where we just refocus on the fact that this is not just an optional extra, this is part of the package and Jesus doesn't think we've got the full thing until we're walking in the fullness of all that he died to win for us. Some of it, I think, is that we have heard about it but we don't seek it. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. And what is faith? Well, if you You must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And God is looking for hunger. In my case, it wasn't a very articulate hunger. It wasn't, I didn't really know what I was looking for, but I was looking for something. And God in his grace will sometimes just ambush us and give us something. But but he wants us to pursue him. He wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He wants us to count everything as loss for the sake of gaining him. So that may be an issue for us. But I've also come to a realization that sometimes we pursue things for the wrong reasons. We pursue them out of insecurity. Of course, God will work with whatever we give him. Our motives are always mixed. You know, I I, I don't know why I was... Maybe I wanted to look good in those Bible studies, but... Maybe I wanted the security of seeing my life touch other people's lives and maybe it wasn't so much about them, it was a bit about me. But, but the truth is, God will use it, but he is looking for people who seek him. He's looking for people who are hungry. I hope today will stir up hunger. I hope today there'll be a taste of it. But even if there is, there's so much more. We've got to keep going on. We've got to keep going on. We've got to keep pursuing But we should also strike a cautionary note. Sometimes we pursue things for the wrong reasons. The power of God is for the mission of God. And so if you want to go for this, what I would say is don't seek the experience. Throw yourself into the mission of God. Seek to live for the kingdom of God. And then the power of God that you need will will be something you will be earnestly praying for, for the right reasons and motives. But there's another thing as well. We regularly see anointed leaders fail and fall. I and when mean, you just got to be anywhere near Christian Twitter, it, like, at the moment it's heartbreaking. It feels like it's one a week or you know, one a month maybe. We just see them again and again and again. Another story of an anointed person who's fallen. Now I, I think often that is spiritual warfare, but I think often it's a pursuing of the spirit for the wrong ends. It's a using of the power of God, a using of the anointing, not a submission of the anointing. And I think um, although those are the big dramatic ones, you know, the ones that get the headlines, I think those kind of things can happen in all sorts of little ways as well. And maybe a lot of us, we're not walking in the fullness of the spirit because in a small way, we're living out some of the same sinful tendencies. Now, when I i started feeling a few years ago that the holy spirit was cleaning house i'm actually quite encouraged by that i mean as as you know as a christian it's terrifying to me that leaders are falling and failing but actually in a weird kind of way i think god's getting ready for a big move i think he's kind of like he's saying i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna position new leaders i'm gonna put people in place that I know can be trusted with the things of God because there's so much more I want to bring I don't think we're there yet but I think we're beginning to sense that something's just over the horizon and we're beginning to to think that all of those prayers for all of these years are not going to be in vain they're going to give you know when you pray like that heaven will answer and maybe we're getting closer to it but I started asking myself you know why 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 is it leaders fall because I don't want to I don't, you know, I I want to learn from bad examples so I don't repeat them. And um, there's a brilliant book about leadership called The Making of a Leader by a man called Robert Clinton. And um, he he looks at how leadership goes over a lifetime, but he he highlights one particular shocking fact. So in the Bible, there are about a thousand people who are identified as leaders. You know, people who are individual personalities that we can see a leadership gifting or anointing upon them. And um, of those, probably about 49 to 50, we have enough of a biography that we can look at the trajectory of their life and we can see how they lived out their leadership over a longer period of time. In other words, they don't, they don't just kind of like swim into a focus in the story and then swim back out again. But we've got enough data to make a, um, an assessment of them. And the scary thing is, is, Robert Clinton says, two-thirds of those people don't end well some of them limp across the line like david you know started brilliantly you know fantastic man after god's heart front row in heaven i'm sure but he doesn't quite end well does he you now it's the whole bathsheba thing there's the murder of uriah the hittite he he has too much blood on his hands and he can't build the temple the solomon wisest man who ever lived made an absolute mess at the end of his life made made alliances, married foreign wives, heart turned towards other gods. you got Jehoshaphat, reforming king, fantastic, you know, amazing, understands the power of worship in battle, and yet makes trading alliances with other nations that the Lord has told him not to. you got those sorts of people. You've got some people who just really go off because they can't manage their family. You can look at the patriarchs again and again, or, or Eli the priest. You've got some people who are kind of super anointed and never really seemed to make even a good start like Absalom. And I wanted to talk today about Samson. And the reason I want to talk about Samson is because I think in the Old Testament, you could make an, argue that he has a, an argument that he has the strongest anointing of the spirit of anybody in the Old Testament. You know, he, he is a unique character. And his stories in the book of Judges, and, and the book of Judges um, feels like a book for the age in which we live. The last verse of the book of Judges basically says in those days Israel had no king and everybody did what they liked. And this kind of rejection of authority, this um, independent spirit is the characteristic of our age and also sadly a model held up for manhood. So often as men the, 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 the macho man image is the totally independent person. Nobody controls me, the wild, free spirit. And it's too much like the book of Judges for comfort. Now, in Judges, what we get is the story of how God's people either forget about him completely or come to think that the blessings and benefits of being his are something that they deserve to have by right. And so they cheapen it. And again and again you see at least seven cycles of this. The the land is at rest, the people are enjoying the blessing of God, they forget God and they turn against him. And in their rebellion they step out from under God's covenant protection and so the Lord allows their enemies to come upon them. They begin to experience pain and they remember God, they cry out to him in repentance, he raises up a saviour, a rescuer, Uh, they're called judges, and then the the enemy is defeated, the land returns to rest. But then the whole thing happens again. They forget God, they cheapen the covenant, and then they kind of go. There's at least seven cycles like that. And the last and the worst of it is the story of Samson. Now, um, there's lots of judges that you'll know, like Deborah and Gideon, you know, be familiar perhaps with some of their stories or recognize their names. Samson gets four whole chapters this is a fairly significant thing and um, although he is somebody that God uses and although he is therefore somebody that we can look at and learn from and um, Hebrews sort of celebrates him in passing he isn't I would suggest a type of Jesus you know a lot of commentators like stand themselves on their head trying to interpret whether we're meant to You know, how do we learn from this incredibly anointed man? I would suggest that Samson is a type of the church. It's a a warning to the church about not receiving the power of God and then squandering it in our lives. Because God still sends the Spirit. You can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit coming into your life. And God has sent waves of revival and renewal. We're we're privileged to be living in days where we can talk about these things. The church knows about them and we can pray for the fullness of the Spirit. But the question is, are we going to live in the fullness of the Spirit or are we going to waste it? You know, I do not want a Samson life and I don't want a Samson church. You know, we, we need to kind of learn from these lessons so that we can step into the fullness Now, um, the encouragement actually is that the first chapter of Samson's story, which is Judges 13, um, breaks the pattern that has been established by the book of Judges. Because throughout Judges, remember when people do evil in the sight of the Lord and they begin to experience pain, they repent and they turn back to the Lord. And that's how he raises up a saviour. On this particular example, it says this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And it says nothing about them remembering, repenting and returning. And yet the Lord does it anyway. The Lord is gracious. You know, sometimes we're not even looking for him, but for his own purposes, he just decides he's going to ambush us. And he's going to come. He's going to restore us. And um, the stories interesting it's um it's one of the many stories in the bible about god bringing life where there was no possibility of life you know barrenness infertility and um the woman who's never named probably because you know her shame was so well known in the village that everybody just you know her Manoah's wife the one who can't have children we never have her name but it says that she was barren and childless and the angel turns up and says, you're barren and childless. So sensitivity from angels, not, not always their strong point. But, but basically, the angel is drawing attention to her state. There is something about this state of barrenness and desperation that breaks the heart of the Lord. And I think if we, if we really want to see breakthrough in our own lives, recognize the poverty of our, of our experience, that's a good start. The Lord is attracted to desperate prayers. And so the angel comes and says you will have a child and you'll probably know the story even from Sunday school the child is to live under a vow touch no dead thing, drink no alcohol, cut no hair that's basically the you know, that's the line that Samson is meant to live under and it says at the end of the chapter the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him now once we read into his story we're going to do a little bit of a you know robert clinton bio search we're going to go straight over the whole of his story rather than look into the passage line by line by line but chapter 14 begins like this samson went down to timnah that's enemy territory where the philistines are he saw a young philistine woman returned and said to his parents i've seen a philistine woman go and get her as my wife and his parents said well aren't there any okay jewish women you know, as a nobody amongst our own people. And Samson says, get her, she's the one for me. Now, Samson through his whole life is going to have a problem with valuing what he can see more than what he can't see. I have seen this woman, that's what I want, I want her. Now, what, something funny is going on here because the next verse says, his parents didn't know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. In other words, I think what's going on is Samson has a sense of being called down to this place. But the Lord is calling him down to this place for a fight. Samson's decided to go down there for a marriage. And this is like one of the reasons, I think, why so often people lose the anointing, why they they blunt the work of the Holy Spirit. It's because they sense that they're called to go into places where the Lord is not known. But when they get down there, they marry the culture rather than transform it. So just think about what that's like. You know, so often we see people who are called to go. Well, you know, the Lord has placed within them a pioneering, apostolic, adventurous spirit. And they go out into these dark places to bring the light of Christ. And then gradually the, the, the light fades and the darkness seems to sort of permeate as well. Jesus said, you know, we're salt and light, but if the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. You know, it's it's, it's just, at that point, it's dirt, really, isn't it? There's nothing about it. I was um, in um, the slums of Kampala a couple of weeks ago with Nicola Neal's ministry, Every Life. They are amazing, by the way. Absolutely incredible. We had an amazing time. But the way that we coped with going into those dark places with all the depravity and all of the abuse and all of the you know, the, the occult and all that's there, the way we did it is we, we got together and we worshiped for an hour, hour and a half, every single morning, most evenings. And then we would go down, taking the light of Christ. Now, so many of us, we don't realize how, how the Lord is sending us. We, we are called to stand up for God, but that means that we need to stand against sin. And Samson just plays with it. So as the passage goes on, Samson's going down to check out his potential future wife. And he's attacked by a lion and he he tears the lion apart. Spirit of God comes on him. Um, And then he comes back again. And as he's going again, he thinks, I wonder what that lion's looking like now. And he goes past it. And in the carcass, some bees have formed a hive. And so he scoops some honey out, and eats it as he goes along. Touch no dead thing. Okay, he's cheapened that one already. Goes down to his wedding feast. His wedding feast looks like it's a fairly boozy affair. The Bible doesn't make it clear, but I'm pretty confident there was quite a lot of alcohol going on. He doesn't have any friends, by the way, so they provide 30 friends for him to celebrate with him. And he, he comes up with this ridiculous riddle game, you know, out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet. What am I talking about? 30, 30 garments of clothes are at stake here. Of course, they think this is completely unfair. I mean, how on earth could you answer a riddle like that? And so they put pressure on his wife. And eventually, they you know, she, she comes and asks him, tell me the answer, and he says, I won't. And she just nags and nags and nags. Eventually, they put her on the spot, and the, the Philistines say, if you do not get the answer out of your husband, we will burn you and your husband, and your father to death. So she comes back to Samson, and she, she basically drags him down. She wears him down to the point where he goes, oh, all right, you know, and he tells her the story. And so they come back, and they give the answer, you know, what's what's stronger than a lion? What's sweeter than honey? And Samson's enraged because he knows, there's only one way you could have found this out. There's only one person I've told, and that's my wife. A very memorable line, by the way, um... If you had not ploughed with my heifer, there's a few implications as to what that might mean. I think, you know. But anyway, um, you certainly shouldn't call your new wife a cow. That's okay. Just hints and tips for a fortnight's time. Okay. I mean, if you'd not ploughed in my heifer, you would have you would not solved my riddle. So what he did was, what he goes down. He takes the power of God. The Spirit of God comes on him. And he goes down to another town, kills 30 men and brings those clothes back to fulfill the bargain. Then he runs off to sulk. Sometimes later he comes back to collect his wife and they go, oh, I didn't think you liked her, so he gave her to your best man. Now he's really angry and he goes out and he catches foxes and he sets the foxes loose with flaming torches in their tails and he basically destroys all of their harvest. And the Philistines go, who's done this? So they come up to attack him and he kills many of them and he goes off again. And then the Philistines come out again with an army and say, we're going to have to deal with this guy. Now, basically, what I want you to see is that his his vengeance is becoming disproportionate. It's growing all the time. First time he, he gets in his anger, he kills 30 people. Then they come up to take him. He kills many having destroyed the grain harvest that probably would kill many as well. Now it says an army come up to get him. And there's a little sad note here, actually, because 3,000 men from Judah come up and say, you know, don't you realize the Philistines are our rulers? What are you doing? The sadness of that is twofold. Firstly, the men of Judah are happier to live under the enemy than they are to throw the enemy overboard. Don't annoy the enemy. Like, don't don't get involved in ministry. The devil might attack you more. Like, just live with it. Live quietly, and maybe he won't. You know, if you kind of, like, keep your head down, maybe nothing will happen. Don't stand up. No, no, no. Men of Judah are meant to stand up. And the sadness, the second sadness, is that Samson doesn't even care about that. God has given him an army. There's 3,000 men here that if he could just cast vision and inspire them... What difference would that make? But he's so self-centred that he doesn't even think he needs anybody else. And he basically says to them, well, all right, um, you can tie me up and we'll pretend that, you know, you're on their side, and but, you know, really, I won't do anything to you. And so that's what they do. The army come up and he snaps the bonds really easily and it says that he, he basically kills many. What he does is he um, finds the, the fresh jawbone of a donkey, dead things, fresh jawbone donkey. And with the fresh jawbone of a donkey, he kills a thousand men. Again, can you see? So, he's so self-centered in this, so selfish. He's, he's indulging his anger. Man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. He's indulging his anger. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And I think actually one of the ways that the enemy can, can drag us down, particularly as, as men, is to get us to go beyond being righteously angry into unrighteous anger. And there's lots of manifestations of it. You, you could be a keyboard warrior. Or you could be a, an, an angry man with a throbbing vein in your temple. It's the same thing, though. It's unbridled. It's ill-disciplined. So this selfishness, I don't need anybody else. Self-centeredness. It ends up actually in the whole chapter, it ends up as being self-glorifying as well. He he prays one of his two prayers. You know, I've just won this great battle. Am I gonna get, you know, am I gonna die of thirst now? That's basically his prayer. It's not a great one. Both of his prayers in the, in the book are prayers of extreme selfishness. So God is calling us to stand up, to go into enemy territory and take it back. But that means standing against sin. And he is calling us to surrendered lives, whereby word and deed, in motivation and intention, we are not self-centered, self-glorifying, building our own kingdoms it's to live for the kingdom of God now you'll probably know the last part of his story the best and again it's a it's a terrible indictment really on a life if the worst part of your life is the bit that you're known for you know, I, I love the way that the New Testament basically does a whitewash on almost every biblical character. You know, have you noticed that? In the Old Testament, you read their story and you think, "Oh, these are terrible people." In the New Testament, Abraham was so amazing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like he pimped his wife. You know, no, no, no. Okay, Abraham was incredible. You know, so, um, so I love the fact that with with the lens of grace and with the Lord's eyes of mercy, and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I love the fact that we get whitewashed. But there are some biblical characters who really don't get redeemed. I want to be known for the best bits, not the worst bits. But Samson, sadly, is definitely his worst bits. And what you see in the whole thing is that Samson and Delilah, that's the last chapter, the last story. And most people know it. You know, basically, he ends up with this person he shouldn't be with. There's lots of little notes in the text that I think A Jewish reader would understand and we miss them. So it's things like this. So Delilah's name means uh, devoted and of the night. Samson's name, by the way, means of the light, the shining sun of the light. So light should have nothing to do with darkness, but he's he's with her. She's probably a cultic prostitute. That's the most obvious understanding of, of who she is and what she's about. She's in the Valley of Sorek. The Valley of Sorek is the Valley of the Best Vines. Little hints of alcohol again. And as she goes through this story, what happens is that she starts to ask him about the secret of his great strength. Now, I think he's, he's blown his vows already. But the one thing he hasn't blown yet is, is the hair thing. So she starts to ask him. You know, and often the enemy will, will approach gradually up to the key issue the key issue and samson thinks he can handle it this is the this is the mistake he thinks he can he can cope he sort of plays with it slightly and so she sort of says you know what's the secret of your great strength and he says well if you tie me down with seven fresh bow bow strings that have not been dried i'll become as weak as any other men and then you know the story that's what she does in the middle of the night she shouts samson the soldiers are here he wakes up Breaks the bowstrings apart, kills all the men. So then she says, that obviously wasn't the secret, Samson. You've made a fool of me. You lied to me. Tell me how you can be tied. And he goes, oh, if you use new ropes, that's what you need to do. I didn't, you know, I didn't say it before, but it's, it's got to be new ropes So he falls asleep and she ties him up, middle of the night. Samson, the soldiers are here. It's like, what a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he wakes up, he snaps the, and he kills the man. It's just the same thing again. Then Delilah says, all this time you've been making a fool of me. Tell me how you can be tied. And so he starts getting a little bit closer to the truth. And this time he says, well, if you braid my hair into a loom. And so he falls asleep and she shouts in the middle of the night, Samson, the soldiers are here. And he wakes up and he discovers that his hair has been braided into a loom. That might have been a bit of a hint. <laughs> if he hadn't took the other hints, that was probably a good one. So he breaks up, he, he wakes up, he breaks the loom, kills the men. And she's still getting on with it. And so she's then saying to him, How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me. I would actually say it's the third time she's made a fool of him. What's happening in this is she's wearing him down. She's getting closer and closer to the truth. He's giving her more and more each time. He's conceding ground. And eventually he tells her about the Nazarite vow. And it says that she saw that he had told her everything. You know, there's a point in your life sometime where you're just, you're wide open. And that's the time the enemy will get you. So she sends word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more. He has told me everything. And it says after putting him to sleep on her lap, probably a suggestion of alcohol again, she then gets somebody in, they shave his hair off, his strength left him. And then when the Philistines come this time, he gets up and he can't do anything about it. And they take him and they blind him. And the end of the story is they put him in their temple and they mock him. Now, I know the end of the story is actually his hair starts to regrow. And the Lord gives him, like as it were, one final moment of doing something. But the image that sticks with me is the image of Samson, blind, enslaved, and with the glory of the Lord, shaved away. And it's kind of like, when I pray about the church, sometimes that's what it feels like. You know, I look at the church, and I, I, I look at, You know, sometimes my own local church, sometimes the national church, sometimes the church in the West. There's so many times I look at it and I think, the glory of the Lord has departed, and and people are not running. The demons do not flee. People are not running to Christ. The enemy is not afraid. Where's the power gone? And well, have we played with evil? Have we toyed with it? Have we tolerated it? Is there a good enough churchianity where you can be good enough, presentable enough, that you can survive? Maybe the presence of God isn't powerful enough in our churches yet for us to be convicted of our sins. You know, when was the last time you were convicted? And by convicted, I don't mean you had a vague idea that you probably should try better. You know, when was the first time that the word of God (coughs) pierced your heart? And you thought, Lord, I must... I must be holy. I must be holy and I can't accept by your grace. It's such a significant thing. You know, I I think the the mistake that Samson makes is he tolerates the slippery slope. And slippery slopes are totally avoidable until you start going down them. And as you start going down them, you pick up momentum and they become harder and harder and harder. And, And I believe that these leaders that we're seeing falling didn't start out as wolves. I don't think they were ever wolves sent amongst the sheep. I think they're leaders who've been gradually seduced, who have lost the inner life. You know, leaders, like the New Testament says, who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. It's not changing them anymore. Of course, they can still move in the anointings. In some ways, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. You know, often people get to the stage where their their notoriety and their their anointing and their learned experience is enough to make something happen in the room. There's nothing happening in their heart. You know, you're probably not anywhere near that. I hope by the grace of God I'm not anywhere near that. But if we want to move in the fullness, if we want to experience the fire and move in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then we're going to have to take our stand in holiness as well. You know, the, the spirit of God is holy spirit. He doesn't want to be grieved. He's easily offended. And and we must not tolerate those those little things. Not least because if we do, they'll lead to bigger ones. We'll start slipping down the, the slope. Now, I, I, this is not a council of perfection, by the way. I don't believe, as we look at the Bible, that we see people who, who move in that with the exception of the Lord Jesus. This is a word to the wise. Um, Martin Luther, uh, the great German reformer, said, you cannot stop the birds flying over your head, but you don't have to let them make a nest in your hair. It's like you're not, you know, you are not going to live a life free from temptation. Even Jesus didn't. Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. But the difference is, what's your attitude to it? You know, are you a soldier who fights it immediately? You know, do, you, do you take those thoughts and, and do you make them captive, obedient to Christ? Or do do at some level, you know, do you enjoy the fantasy? Do you enjoy the temptation? Do you indulge it? Do you play with it? Do you tiptoe towards it just to see what it might be like? That's the Samson mistake. God is calling his church to holiness. He's calling his church to hunger. He's calling his church to humility. And that's that's us. That's us. And if we want fire, I think that's how we get it. The Spirit of God came upon Jesus and rested on him because there was no flaw or fault in him. I wonder whether sometimes our experience of the Spirit is not lasting because there is flaw and fault. And we don't keep short accounts with God. We need to live lives of, of regular confession and repentance and regular hungering, seeking, tarrying, pleading that God would send his spirit. That's how we get fire. I'm really excited about um, being able to sit and listen to our other speakers today because I think in, in different ways they're going to point us to what the battle looks like. But this talk is what's going on in the hearts. What's the, what's the platform on which all of that challenge and adventuring is going to be about? And I, I would love us to pray at this point for an experience of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Not as this is the only time it's going to happen during today. I think we're going to pray for it again and again and again. But because we might as well start with what we're going for. We might as well start pressing in. So would you guys like to stand? Yes, yeah, we just wait. Yeah, thanks. Let's just start by acknowledging the grace of God. Lord, we come empty handed, we come only by grace. We are completely reliant on your mercy. We want to thank you so much that what we couldn't do for ourselves, you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. And we want Jesus to get all that he paid for. We want to experience the fullness that he sends as he sends the Holy Spirit on his church. And so I'll just invite you to a few moments of complete honesty before the Lord. <coughs> it's your personal relationship with him that this day is all about. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would even now begin to fall upon the hearts of us all. I was thinking in a, in a, in a way that doesn't condemn but that um, invites that the spirit wants to show us again the poverty of our experience and call us again to believe for more. Experiences, there really is more this is not it's not for some people it's for all God withholds no good gifts from his children he longs to pour out his Holy Spirit on those who seek him Lord we need you would you send down the fire you ignite fresh passion you bring fresh power not for our glory not for our kingdoms but for your Lord for your kingdom yours alone break us of self will (laughs) teach us to seek holiness and not to tolerate sin the Lord to say that he's seeking surrendered soldiers you know, some of those old martial images of the church are, are ones that we're not always that comfortable with and they can be abused but there's something about discipline there's something about authority there's something about a willingness to fight the good fight to use your strength on behalf of the weak Come, um, Holy Spirit. more of you love.